the SF Music Tech Summit, recorded live by Media One Audiovisual. To learn more about us, visit us online at MediaOneAudio.com. All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, how are you feeling? Are you ready to rock? Are you ready to talk about licensing? <laughs> the title of uh, this morning's panel is, When Should You Get Permission? Uh, but I feel that a good subtitle for uh, this morning's discussion would be something like, Is Licensing for Chumps? And uh, uh, Napster didn't have licenses, nor did YouTube iTunes does, as do Mog and many other digital subscription services. Some services operate without any licenses. Some operate under the DMCA, trading some restrictions for government set rates, and some operate uh, by licensing music directly from content owners. So this panel is going to discuss uh, the pros and cons of licensing and permission. Uh, businesses that have gotten licenses have struggled financially, so some people argue that taking licenses is a bad business decision. But others argue that operating without licenses is unethical and disrespectful to the artists and works that enable business in the first place. Our panel today consists of experts who represent many different perspectives. David Porter is the CEO and founder of 8Tracks, a site that allows users to create mixtapes of 8 tracks or more, hence the name, uh, to provide a kind of socially curated radio. David previously worked at Live365, uh, and I've known him for about a year, year yeah, and a half? About a year and a half, yeah. Uh, Daryl Ballantyne, at the other end, is the CEO and founder of Lyric Find, a company he conceived of in 2000 and founded in 2004. Lyric Find offers the largest legal licensed lyrics database in the world and has established licensing and content relationships with over 2,000 music publishers. Getting there hasn't been easy. I've known Daryl for several years and helped integrate Lyric Find's service into Rhapsody. Daryl is patient, persistent, professional, and Canadian. <laughs> and in the middle, we have uh, Michael Robertson. Uh, he is an innovator and entrepreneur. He started, I think, 14 companies in fields including voice over IP, Linux, and most notoriously, digital music. Uh, he's been sued by the content industry more times than all of the people here today combined. <laughs> a controversial figure unafraid to share his opinions and ideas in the decade plus that I have known Mr. Robertson, I have also found him to be a thoughtful, kind, and generous human being. Mr. Robertson recently won a lawsuit filed by EMI against him and his company, MP3 Tunes. MP3 Tunes offers a cloud-based locker service that allows users to upload digital music to a central storage system for personal streaming or downloading back to the devices of their choice. Did I get, did I get all that right? Any, any things we need to clear you, up? You got it right. And for the record, this is the first <laughs> time he's ever called me Mr. Robertson. So, <laughs> All right. So licensing. I'd like to uh, start off by uh, having each one of our panelists talk about why their business chose to get or not get licenses. So, David, why don't we start with you? I'm sure. Well, I think uh, we definitely chose to go after the licenses from the get-go because we didn't want to get sued. Um, but our, our path is a little bit different because there's a compulsory license for webcasting that Internet Radio can take. So it's kind of an in-between thing. We actually don't have to go out and strike deals with the record labels, which makes things easier. Um, but we're also not operating, uh, you know, without any licensing at all and trying to take the, the DMCA's notice and takedown provisions, which some services have in, in times past. Um, so because the rates are relatively inexpensive, uh, we can actually support our model with advertising. And so it just seemed like a no-brainer to, to actually go the, the legit route. 
So what restrictions are around your service uh, with respect to, say, uh, an, a totally unlicensed service or a service that's operating outside the DMCA? Um, well, the, the, so if you're, if you're doing a kind of a Groove Shark or iMeme in the early days, they really have no restrictions. It's just free on-demand streaming, and then you kind of negotiate the licenses later. Uh, with our service, there's a set of rules both on the programming side for the DJs who make playlists on the service and also on the listener side, um, the spirit of which is really to make sure that that consumption is like radio, uh, and so is uh, promotional of music sale and not cannibalistic of music sale. So, for instance, you can't see the playlist in advance. You can't um, skip more than a certain number of times. Uh, on the programming side, you can't include more than uh, three tracks by uh, a given, uh, or from a given album or a given artist in a certain period of time, that kind of thing. And where does the content come from? Um, so in our case, the content comes from the DJs themselves. So anyone who wants to be a DJ on 8-tracks can upload music from their own personal collection, uh, create a playlist, and then publish it. Um, so in a sense, the, the DJ's access to that content is kind of like a locker, and other people's access to that content is just like radio because they don't know what's coming up next. Great. Uh, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, MP3 tunes and uh, licensing and not licensing? Well, I think on, on licensing, there's, I think of it as a spectrum, and it's not do I license, do I not license. There's actually several notable um, uh, in between. So uh, there is, of course, the I'm not going to get a license um, path that many people have taken. Um, that's at one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum would be I'm going to go to the major record labels and, and do, do a license. Um, but there's actually two in the middle. Um, one is the compulsory license, right, where you don't have to actually negotiate with each and every record label in the world and advances and all these crazy stuff. It's the government sets the rates. Um, and then there's another one where it's a direct license, not with the major record labels, right? It's going to the indies and, and things like that. Those, I think, are the really the, the meaningful four options. And I think if you say, you know, do I license or not license, you could probably restate that as do I want to make money or not make money? Because um, that is a, a big driver in it. Um, presumably, you're starting these companies to make money. Um, and if you look at the far end of the spectrum, which is doing a deal with the major record labels, I would challenge you that the odds, if you look at the last decade, of making money after doing a deal with the major record labels is pretty close to zero. And that's just the economic realities. So I'm not telling people don't do a deal with the record labels. I'm simply saying that if I challenge you to say, tell me a company that has done a deal with the major record labels and actually made money, there aren't a lot. Maybe somebody th throws out uh, iTunes, uh, which you know uh, may or may not be making money selling music on iTunes. Clearly, they make money on, on the iPod, uh, on the iPhones. Um, but there just, there's just isn't a lot of examples there. And so I think that that's, that's a very rich license. And if you're going to try to make money, that's, that's not the way to go. I think the other end um, is more interesting. Uh, you have uh, companies like YouTube um, that didn't get a license and, and are very profitable. Or, you know, it's, they don't publish their numbers individually, but they, they do well, I think. Uh, there's the compulsory licenses. There's mp3.com, my previous company, where we did... Um, licensing direct with individual artists and, and small record labels. And, 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 and that's on very different terms, right? Really, you're talking about do you have the leverage. 
And in those uh, examples, you know, the independent artists wanted to work with us and would agree to terms that worked. With my, my two current companies, it's MP3 Tunes and DAR. MP3 Tunes is a music locker. Um, we didn't get licenses because we don't think we need licenses because we focus around people storing their own personal music and listen, listening to it. As Anu mentioned, um, uh, there was a legal battle that's been going on for five years and, and we finally got a ruling three weeks ago and, and we won on the vast majority of the issues. So I think that set really uh, important precedence for other companies like Google and Amazon who have emulated what we do. Um, more recently, I launched DAR.FM, which is a TiVo for radio service, so you can go there and record anything. There, again, we did not get licenses, again, because our, our position is the law doesn't require it. So I, I think there isn't a blanket you should or shouldn't get a license. It really depends on, on what the law says, what you do. Um, but I would say that getting a license with the major record labels uh, doesn't have a good track record of being successful. All right, and uh, Daryl, you uh, you operate a service that uh, has licenses, and in fact, that's arguably the uh, the fundamental underpinning of what you do. So tell us a little right. bit about that. It, for us, we we chose to go the fully licensed route, but we're a little bit different in how we're offering the service because we're a B two B company. So for us, for those who don't know, we. Uh, aggregate all the rights and content for the use of song lyrics online. And we've done deals with over 2,000 music publishers to get the rights to provide all of this content to a number of different services uh, out there. And we've got a team of people that sit with headphones on transcribing all of the content to make sure that accuracy is, is perfect. Uh, but because we're B2B, it's a very different situation than a B2C company. Uh, our whole value proposition to our clients is you want a legal lyric solution and you don't want to have to do 2,000 publishing deals on your own and, and build up this database, so come to us and get it in one stop. If we're just offering them unlicensed content, what's, what's the value in it for them? They may as well just go and scrape various legal, illegal lyric sites and pull the content in and just violate copyright anyway. So... As a B2B service, it was incredibly important for us to actually get legitimate licensing and only be offering licensed content uh, to our clients. On the B2C side, the decision process can be a little bit different because then you're not passing on that liability to other corporations. It's really just on your own head. For us, you know, if we're providing content to, uh, to other companies, we have to make sure that that's, that's covered. So, as, as part of that, we fully indemnify all of our clients against any uh, copyright inf infringement that resulting from lyrics that we provide because that's, that's our issue, not theirs. Uh, so that's, that's part of our, our logic behind it, that if we didn't actually have licensing, what, what would be the point of us existing? What percentage of, of, of songs do you have lyrics for? Uh, in terms of popularity, it's about 85% of demand that we cover right now. And do you have a, uh, a number that you release in terms of the, the millions of songs that you have covered? I know that, that it's been a really interesting uh, path for you. So what you guys may not know is that in the case of a lot of the digital audio, if you go to the record companies today and you sign a direct license, they will actually, for the most part, give you the audio content and say, hey, you've, you've signed up for a license, so here's our actual intellectual property. 
for much of what, what Daryl had to do, though, he went to the music publishers and he said, I'd like a license for all of the millions and millions of songs that you control the lyrics for. And they said, great. And they signed the deal. And he's like, okay, send me the lyrics. And they're like, well, we don't, we don't have them. <laughs> so what we want you to do is to transcribe them yourself and then send them back to us. So he's literally paying them to deliver their own intellectual property back to them. No, we don't actually give it back to them. Oh, they, yeah. Every nice. single major publisher and other publisher tried to put that into the deal, and we said no. Because that's, you know, we've, we've spent a ton of money building up our database. And there's no way we're just giving that away so that they can yeah. enable somebody else to compete with us. What are the licensing, <laughs> what are the licensing rates like for lyrics? Is that public it, information? Or it varies. Um, we have a lot of different structures that we work on depending on the service. So essentially what we've done is we've built a model with all the publishers that reflects every other way that people could be making money in the music industry. So we can do ad-supported models, we can do subscription-based models, we can do CPM-based models, we have permanent downloads, we have, uh, in, at the end of the year last year, we launched a program called Lyrics for Free, where we provide the content for free to uh, any, any web service or, and uh, just monetize it ourselves through advertising so that they don't have to make any sort of financial commitment to us. So that's been really popular. Uh, but we're very, very flexible now, and we've gotten to the point, especially over the last couple of years, that our checks to the publishers get bigger and bigger every quarter, so they actually like us now, and we can talk to them about abnormal models and do different things to uh, uh, try to monetize lyrics and, and fit them into every service that's out there. So with the, uh, with the hindsight of experience, and with you guys having operated your various businesses for some time now, uh, would you do things the same way if you were starting over or if you were starting a new business? Or put another way, do you think that licensing or the lack thereof has imposed uh, conditions or, or growth constraints on your business? Um, yeah, it's, it's imposed a lot of constraints. Uh, you know, it took us years to get all the licenses done uh, with the majors. And part of that was that nobody had ever asked for those licenses before. So we would go to them and say, hey, we want to license your lyrics. And they'd be like, uh, I don't know if we can actually do that. Or we had one publisher that said, okay, you'd like to license lyrics. Please fill out this license request form and fax it into us. And it was a, it was a form for one song. And this was a major publisher. Are we going to fax them a million pages? We don't even know what stuff is theirs. And we just want everything. So there was a lot of educational process that went into it and figuring out what the models would be and whether they could actually do it. Uh, but as I said before, no, licensing for us was a necessity. So we had to do it that way. And if I was doing it again, I would still do it that way. Uh, I would have had my expectations be a little bit different because I didn't think it would take three years to get all the licenses. Uh, but for our business, it's, it's a reality. If I was just starting a consumer lyrics website, I wouldn't necessarily be worried about getting licensing right off the bat, and I'd be more focused on building up an audience, and you can always add in licensing, and well, there's a lot of ways now that you can do licensing, like through, through us or through others, that is quick and easy, uh, but uh, fortunately, we don't have to deal with the labels either, so that makes our life a little bit easier. Yeah. When you go to the publishers and you say, hey, I, I want to license your lyrics, um, Presumably, you're not paying them advances, right? Like uh, it often happens with uh, Spotify's of the world. Sadly, we are. Oh, you are paying advances? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Because I was going to ask how, without paying advances, were you able to get licenses? And that's the answer, <laughs> huh? Yeah. yeah, we had to pay advances to uh, all the majors. But you didn't have to give up equity? No, we didn't, we didn't have to give up equity. 
Yeah. Now, Michael, you've uh, you've done a lot of experimentation with different business models and uh, not really done a lot of asking permission. Uh, earlier, we heard David talk about how uh, part of the reason that they operate under the licenses that they do is he didn't didn't want to get sued. Uh, you've been through that uh, uh, grinder a few times. Has it uh, affected the way that you think about your businesses? Uh, well, when you lose and you have to pay them money, yeah, that definitely affects <laughs> your business. Um, you know, I, I think the, and, and for the record, you know, I, I have been in, involved in, in, you know, a number of copyright lawsuits. The challenge is, is that to many in the music industry, any use of their works without a license constitutes infringement. Um, I'll use as an example the recent ruling that we had that took five years and millions of dollars to go through. The judge in that ruling said, MP3 Tunes does not promote infringement, period. That was the sentence. Um, this, is, he, he, this was in his, his ruling, his finding of facts, right? The facts that he says, this is the way the world is. What does EMI respond with to the press? Well, that I've built my entire business on piracy. And, and that is one of the real challenges, is that to the music industry, anything that touches music in any way is a licensable event. And if it's not um, licensed, then there could be lawsuits. And the way the law is currently structured is there's these uh, um, terms called statutory infringement rights, which means that... Um, instead of, you know, if I run my car into your car, I have to prove that, uh, uh, you know, who was at fault and then how much damage there were. Well, in the music industry, they don't have to prove the damage part. So you could be doing something like making mixtapes that pr actually promotes music and helps them sell, but they could still sue you, win, and um, have massive damage awards uh, because they don't have to prove that. It's, it's, it's what I think is, is an anomaly in the law, and it's an unjust law, especially when you add to this um, situation the fact that as many of the people in this room are doing, you are doing something new. You are using music in a new way. You're exposing it in a new way. You're allowing people to communicate uh, using music in a new way. And whenever you do that, you are in the gray area legally. Right, because what is gray area? Well, the gray area means there hasn't been an exact case before you that decided this. Well, so if you're anyone working on new stuff, you're gonna be in gray, uncertain area. And that's really a shame when that, the penalty for being in that gray area is close to a death sentence, right? If you lose, you get you know, uh, uh, billions of dollars of, of infringement um, uh, uh, dropped on, on your head. The, the, situation, the system, I would say, is, is grossly imbalanced at, at the moment. Michael, do you think you would have been sued um, for MP3 tunes if you hadn't had the sideload feature? Because that seemed to be kind of the big focus of the, the suit, I thought, and less so just the pure locker service. Um, the answer is yes, I would have still been sued. The reason I was sued for MP3 tunes was not because of what MP3 tunes did. It was because of MP3.com. <laughs> that was going to be my question. Right. right? <laughs> uh, that was a company I founded a, a, a decade ago. And rightly or wrongly, some people think of me as the flag bearer for MP3. 
I'm sure I accelerated it some, but I didn't invent it. It was coming anyways, you know. But still, many in the music industry look at, hey, that Robertson guy is the reason people aren't paying $16 for CDs anymore. And um, it's not entirely an accurate uh, uh, characterization of the situation. So, you know, listen, they didn't just sue me for Sideload. Sideload is a music search engine. They sued me for 97 different things. They said how we stored the files was illegal, when we stored them, why we stored them, how we handled emails to users. I mean, they sued for 97 things. So this notion of, well, they just sued you for this one thing, which was some BS that the Billboard magazine wrote in, in uh, um, Anthony Bruno, who, and I sent him email. He's a, you know, I think he's a decent reporter. But he said, oh, well, the one thing that they really sued you on, they won on this one little thing. Nonsense. They sued us for 97 things, um, knowing, because why do you sue for 97 things? Well, because, again, it goes back to statutory damages. If I can prove you're wrong even one, on one of those 97 things, it's a billion dollars, right? So why not sue for 97 things? Because I only got to win on one, and, and then I'm home free. So it, there was no one thing that we did. The judge said it right. You know, MP3 Tunes doesn't promote infringement. I mean, these guys look through my email, you know, every email I've sent for the last 10 years. They deposed me three times. They deposed my assistant, right? They deposed uh, uh, the majority of people in my company, right? Sat us down for eight hours looking through every email, trying to find that one thing where we said, yeah, go ahead and steal it. They didn't find one thing, you know? Um, so this is, this is it's a, a bit of a vendetta, I think. Yeah, I was say, that was even true back in 99, right? Because there, was, there were other music locker services that were out there that didn't get sued. And what was it called? MyMP3.com did get sued, right? Back in the, that, was, that was effectively a locker as That's well. That's true. And, and, and when, I, when I sold my company, I went to a closing dinner because Vivendi Universal um, bought my company, MP3.com. And I sat next to Edgar Bronfman, um, who was then the head of the CEO of, of Universal Music. And he said, literally in between bites of steak. Hey, you know why we sued you guys? And I was shocked that he said this, right? Because normally at closing dinner, it's all, you know, <laughs> yay, happy times. We're all buddies now. And I said, no, why? And he goes, because I thought you were getting too powerful. And, and that's really the moral of the story here. Copyright infringement lawsuits, they're not necessarily about moral right or wrong. It's really about business leverage. And the way the law is set up today, um, there's lots of leverage for the copyright owner, and I think that encourages them or entices them to, to sue people. So did you ever contemplate taking licenses as a, a way to fend off these billion-dollar lawsuits? Well, the challenge is, is that once you've turned on the service, you can't get retroactive licenses. Well, you can, but they're not gonna, they're, no one's going to do that, right? Once you've turned on a service. But we're working in a digital age. And the law was written like you took one song, right, or you took one CD. But we're working in a digital age where you turn on your server, and maybe you have a, an 8-track uh, uh, you know, playlist server. Well, you turn it on for a month, and you've, you've got a half a million tracks. Well, half a million tracks times $100,000 copyright infringement is what? Jesus, I don't know, it's South America's GDP, right? <laughs> so you can't, like, after you've turned it on, go, I'm going to go back and get a license. It doesn't work that way. Once you've turned it on, it, it is what it is. But the, it's not, uh, you don't see these lawsuits as a negotiation tactic on the part of the, the labels at times. At least in your case, it's been sort of scorched earth. Well, I was never willing to, uh, uh, or I would say was very, very reluctant in signing a license 
that was a death sentence for my company, mm -hmm. as we've seen happen many times, right? right. You can go through this iMeme and, and uh, MySpace Music, right. all these guys who signed licenses. So they got sued. And then the, the, the lawsuits came in, and then what does the board do? They go, well, all right, we'll settle. Okay, we'll pay you $50 million, and we'll pay you this, and we'll pay you that. And MySpace Music did this, and IMEAM did this. And then what happens? Fast forward the clock, they're out of business right. in 12, 18 well, months. Yeah, that's, What's that's, the point of, of signing a license if it's a death sentence? So what, what's the, the solution then? Is it, is it do you get the licenses before you even launch, and it drags on, and it takes forever to get them, and then you may never launch, or do you launch without them and then try to settle afterwards, or do you just try to find business models that don't require licenses? Well, I think that's, that's kind of the, the crux of the biscuit, as Jerry Kirby would say. I mean, in the case of some of the innovations that the people out here and on stage have tried, I don't think that licenses would have even been offered. And uh, having, having worked to set up uh, many of the early subscription service licenses, I can tell you that that was a, a really tedious process, uh, and it remains so. Um, yeah, you mentioned Jerry Kirby, right? Jerry Kirby, for those who don't know, is the CEO of Liquid Audio, who, you know, 12 years ago had the idea, hey, let's sell songs one at a time a la carte for, you know, a buck or two. And, and Liquid Audio went through a couple hundred million dollars, uh, maybe more, I don't know, and that's not a criticism at, at, at all. It's simply an illustration of the enormous effort they went through courting everyone in the music industry, hiring executives and whining and dining them, and they could never get the, the licenses that Apple later secured and is now accredited with being you know, the inventor of the concept, you know, Steve Jobs. Uh, but that's a perfect example of when you're doing something new. I, I was fascinated by, by Daryl's comment that when he asked for a license, they said, yeah, but we don't have that paperwork. What you guys should know is that all the MOG, RDO, Spotify, Napsters of the world, they all have the same license. Oh, there's certain minor changes to it, but it's all the same license. It's coming from the same legal department, and it's you know the same 45 pages of auditing rules and things like that. When you go off the menu like Daryl has done with lyrics, wow, that's crazy, right? When you come to them and they really have to make a new license that they haven't honed over years and years and years, it takes an enormous time, and that's what Jerry stumbled into in Liquid Audio. You couldn't get the licenses for you know, selling songs for, for a buck or two bucks each. Well, even with, with us, the first time we tried to get lyrics licensing was in 2000, 2001, and we couldn't get the deals done because it was just this foreign concept. When we, and we gave up on it for a while and came back to it in 2005 and said, okay, well, maybe things have changed now. And, and they had, and people were more willing to, to work with us and try to figure stuff out, and they'd had some time to look at their writer agreements, figure out if they could actually do it, and they were, a bunch of them were still confused. But you know, it, was, it was a lot further along, and people were a lot more open to the concept, but it took, you know, there was a four-year gap in there that they needed to examine everything and to figure out if it was actually possible. Yeah. Uh, David, did you encounter any, any legal obstacles when you've been uh, operating your service? Generally, no. <clears throat> the only uh, the only things we've had uh, where we've maybe had an inquiry or two are when our DJs are actually violating some uh, term of our service. So I mentioned earlier one of the requirements of the compulsory license is that you don't show the playlist in advance. So we had some DJs who were going in and putting in the playlist in their in their sort of comment section or the description section on the mix. So eventually, you know, we got a few letters and we had to implement um, or we decided to implement. Um, an algorithm that basically blocked people from being able to include that information. Interesting. So it's been little things like that. 
So some extra work on your part. A bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's also funny, you know, you guys talk about the, the difficulties in doing anything new with licensing. I also recall in the early days of really doing any of the music publishing licensing, uh, there was basically this agreement where they said, well, we know we're going to charge you guys something for this, but we can't figure out what it's going to be right now. So we'll just agree to kind of pay at this arbitrary rate for a couple years, and then we'll have some big rate-setting procedure on down the, the line. And that was sort of like a, a time bomb waiting to go off that had a, a real chilling effect on a lot of businesses because nobody knew what those, uh, what those rates were going to be. Um, when you think about starting up new businesses or coming up with new features for the business that you're working in now, do you think about that kind of uncertainty about licensing and new features, or uh, do you just continue to try and figure out features that you don't think require licenses? And does that affect your ability to innovate? Well, I think uh, that's a very astute question. And the answer is, if you're doing something with digital music, then you need to read the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Section 512, focus on Section C and D. Right, uh, that's that's the reality. And if you have a way to um, uh, leverage that law to to be amenable to your business, you should do it. Um, listen, don't think for a second that the major record labels don't use the law a hundred percent to their favor. Right, whether it's uh, making very onerous contracts with artists, whether it's dropping the hammer on digital music companies, whatever. You know, they're using the law to the full extent to uh, uh, run their businesses. Technology companies should be astute and do the same. And I would add that we're now 10 years since mp3.com was in court, where the judge had never heard the term DVD, right? That was the judge that was deciding our case had never heard the term DVD. We're 10 years later now where they understand YouTube. They understand uh, uh, uploading and downloading and sideloading and things like that. And what you're seeing is rulings that are the exact opposite of what you saw from 10 years ago. So the courts are becoming more sophisticated technology. And so if there is a way to look at your business and um, take advantage of the DMCA, then, then you should. And if you don't have a DMCA um, coverage, then... You, you better get licenses uh, um, or you run the risk of, of having lawsuits that you won't have a good defense for. Yeah, and I think to answer your question, we're kind of limited in what we can do in, in adding new features, so there's not a lot of extra flexibility. Um, the one thing we do have to worry about, though, is that uh, the rates get reset every five years. And so, you know, as some of you probably know, the last time around, the rates got reset at a much higher rate and Pandora, you know, was going to go away, and a lot of issues came up, and eventually there was a settlement um, at a lower rate given certain conditions. Um, but that is a worry. And I think to combat that, uh, I think one of the things that we'll look to do is direct deals, with, particularly with the independents. So about those rates, I mean, do you guys think that there's a difference in how much the artists end up getting paid in terms of services that are licensed versus unlicensed? And... Uh, is operating an unlicensed service or a service that pays the artists less unethical? Is it something that we should even worry about? I think, there, well, there's definitely a difference for the artists. It's either zero or something greater than zero. Um, but uh, there, there's a question as well as what is the artist actually entitled to? If it's, you know, if it's a locker service, do they, that anything can be stored in? Is there really... A royalty that's due there, 
versus something like a lyric service where there's clearly a royalty that should be paid there to the songwriters, not even really the artists, and it's clearly built off of their their content and their copyright, so they should be getting paid for and uh, and seeing some of the proceeds for it, especially when there are websites and services using the content and making a pile of money, and that's all they're using. But depending on the service, I mean, the law is there to determine what actually requires a license or not. And if it's something that should require a license from them for the use of their content, then they deserve to be getting paid off of it. Well, I mean, you're asking two questions, right? There's the, the, the moral question and the business question. Um, the business question rules the day. And, and uh, I don't think anybody looks at radio and says, well, radio is, is being unethical because they don't pay record labels to, to play music. I mean, maybe some people do, but the majority of people don't. It's just the way the law is. Um, so I in, think they do in Canada. <laughs> they, do ever, they do everywhere else besides the U.S. Yeah, they yeah. don't in there's, Iraq. <laughs> there's an ethical Fair comment point. to be made somewhere in there. Cuba, you know. I, listen, the 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 laws shape businesses, and businesses have to run in a way that is economically viable. Otherwise, they don't exist for a long time. That's the reality. So this isn't to say that people shouldn't operate ethically. I like to think that everything that my businesses have done have been operated ethically and where people are, you know, uh, owed monies or something like that, then, then, then we're reasonable and, and do that. The challenge is, as I've tried to express, it's really difficult to get to a reasonable deal with the major record labels. So you're, you're, if your choice is, you know, uh, uh, do a major record label deal where they get 30% of your company, they get guaranteed upfronts, you have to go back to them in 12 to 18 months and renegotiate everything with no leverage. Um, you know, I, I think uh, there is the business reality that says people have to be uh, uh, aggressive. I mean, you, you Daryl, have negotiated with, with many, many publishers, and it is about leverage. And sometimes you have to be hard back. You know, uh, and it's oh, not yeah. a question of, yeah. well, should artists get paid? And the people always put that, well, artists should get paid, artists should get paid, artists should get paid. The record labels are notorious about that. Um, but you know where they really stand, right? Because when it comes to artist rights reversions after 35 years, they're going to say nothing goes back to the artist. So I would contend that the artist should be paid has been used so much and is really a smokescreen. Businesses are trying to make the most profit for themselves, and that's what uh, the decisions are ultimately going to be driven by. Yeah, I mean, we're we're all trying to to make money off of it. We're, I mean, it, we're not here as as a charity, and you know, we want to be able to turn a profit as well. We want to get everybody paid, and you know, we we do we turn down deals with publishers all the time that just want ridiculous terms, and we're happy to not use their content. Uh, I mean, we we don't continue to use it. We don't use it at all if we don't have a, have a license, and we'll go to them and say, look. There's, there's some demand for this. There are people that are using this content illegally. We can get your content distributed. We can get you paid for lyrics usage. Here's our terms that everybody else has agreed to. Are you in or not? So and your point is, you're not getting paid anything now. Yeah. It's happening. And so your choice is get paid nothing or get paid something from me. That's what yeah. you say. And, and get something that's the same as everybody else is getting paid. Same as all 2,000 other publishers that we've done deals with. They're all getting... The, the same deal, so, but then, then there's publishers that think that they're special, 
You know, the reality is the music industry is built off of a series of small monopolies. If you want to uh, listen to, if you want to use the Beatles music, you've got to go to EMI. If you want their publishing, you've got to go to Sony ATV. You can't go somewhere else and get that content. So there are people that think that their content is super extra special and they deserve different terms than everybody else because they had one hit song that is popular. Well, everybody else had hit songs too, and we're not going to give a publisher a better deal just to get that one song or that one album or that one artist in there. For us, it's all music is created equal, and we pay out royalties based on usage. So your popularity determines the amount of money you get from us. And that if people don't agree to that structure and that, that deal, then we're happy to not deal, do a deal with them. And they're... Uh, their content will continue to be infringed on by others, not by us, but by other people out uh, uh, in the lyric space, and they don't get paid. I think the other thing to consider, too, is that a lot of independent artists don't really care so much. Um, they're much more concerned with exposure and less about the royalty. So if you look at a service like SoundCloud, when an artist uploads content to their servers, they waive the royalty entirely, and they're willing to do that because they can gain exposure. So I think it depends on the segment. Yeah, yeah. I've said a lot of times that the problem for musicians in the 21st century is not getting people to pay for your music, it's getting people to pay attention to your music. Right. And yeah. if you can't do that, you're never going to make any money. Yeah, we have small indie publishers that come to us and say, you know, we'd like to have our content included on your service. Fine, we're not going to do a separate royalty statement for somebody that has very limited amount of copyrights and usage. If they want to get paid, they can opt into our deal through the Harry Fox agency and everything. Then it just rolls in with the rest of those reports. But if they want to do a direct deal that, and they're a small uh, indie publisher, then we'll do a deal with them, but we're not going to pay them royalties because the overhead of managing that is not worthwhile. So some publishers just choose to not get paid because they don't want to run it through HFA or they don't want to do other things, but that's fine. I'm curious of the panel's uh, uh, view on direct licensing. And, and uh, I knew it was smiling. Was that one of your questions up there? Well, and, I, and, and what is, it, what is, it, what is that going to look like? Uh, uh, David, you mentioned that with direct right. licensing with, with independent artists. And for those who don't know, with Sound Exchange today, uh, they collect the money, uh, roughly 0.1 cent-ish per, per song. And they give, carve out half for the artists and half for the record labels. Right. So, naturally, somebody could go directly to a record label, pay them directly, and, in effect, cut out the, the artist. And one of the questions that I have is, will we see that happening? I'd contend we've already seen the first ones with um, what Sirius has offered. Yeah, that, that, that kind of uh, sound exchange workaround is, is already happening. And uh, some of my uh, colleagues who work uh, for other companies in the space have told me that that's actually a pretty powerful negotiating tactic. Uh, it's one of the few pieces of leverage you have with the labels. Uh, because typically what happens is uh, when you make lump sum payments to the labels, they can figure out how they want to trickle that down to the artists depending on their individual deals with the artists and uh, can, can do whatever sort of accounting they're normally used to doing. Uh, in the case of SoundExchange, that payment to the artist is mandated, and so the labels, in effect, look at that as like they're only getting paid half. And so I, I know for a fact that there are some music services that have gone to the label and said, well, you know, we could just pay SoundExchange and you guys would get 50%, or we can work something out where you might get more than that. And I've also heard them, certain independent labels make that same comment, but they also 
uh, claim that it's it's because the reporting isn't as detailed as they'd like, which which could be true. Well, um, sound exchange is, is definitely something that we could spend an entire entire panel talking about, and at some point that would probably be a good one for for Brian to hey, put up Brian? there. Maybe that'll be be okay. downstairs. I can talk freely then. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, the re, part of the reason I was laughing about direct licensing is that was one of my questions, but I also I have a, a lot of knowledge in that area. I've I've done basically nothing but direct licensed services for the last 11 years, and there's been this this great progression. I remember when we were first looking for the licenses for uh, Rhapsody, uh, it was something like uh, every label wanted 10% of the company and $10 million non-recoupable advances. And at that time, there were five major labels. So you guys can, can do that math. And then the next year, you went back and they were like, well, maybe 5% of the company and maybe $2 million non-recoupable, and it's sort of ratcheted down from being you know, completely unreasonable to something that is, is more manageable, but it's, it's what is still... What it now? I, I, I actually don't know because I, I stopped going to those types of meetings a couple of years ago because it just made me too upset. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that you'll see direct deals continue to evolve. I think for, for big companies, for your Googles and your Amazons and your Apples and behemoths of that size, it's really the only the only thing that they can do. Well, the, the other leverage that those companies have is that it's not their core business, right? Yeah. Google and Apple can look at uh, a music service and say, you know what, we're making billions of dollars everywhere else. We'd like to do this, but we don't have to. If you're a pure play music company, like all of us up here and, and a bunch of other people, then you don't have that leverage. Uh, if I, I'm, I shouldn't say this publicly, but if I go to a publisher and say, you know, uh, you know, we could just not do it. That's crippling my business as well at the same time. But they would just lose the check that we give them. So, but that check means less to them than it does to me. Yeah. So questions out there in the audience about, uh, about licensing? Yes, sir. So the question is about sampling of compositions, presumably for use in, in other compositions. Well, uh, there's... In terms of like 30-second samples you're talking about? Okay. So the question is, uh, where do we stand on 30-second on samples? Well, I guess we should probably clear up a misconception. There is no sort of free pass for 30-second samples. Uh, there has been, I think, the closest thing that the, this industry might have to a gentleman's agreement that they're typically not going to litigate or go after companies that are offering 30-second samples as part of a larger offering. Um, but technically, like playing a part of a composition or distributing a part of a composition should be the same as distributing the whole thing. Um, it might be interesting for someone to start a free 30secondsamples.com site and, and see what happens. I hope you're looking at Daryl, because I'm not going to yeah. do it. <laughs> have, yeah. have any of you guys yeah, had any experience around that? And actually, I would do free 29seconds.com. <laughs> not 30, right? Just to... Now, you'd do free 31 just to push the envelope. No, no. That's not me. I, I think that it, was the young me. Now it's the old me. I, I think it goes to, to the point that Michael was saying about uh, terrestrial radio in the United States. So uh, historically in the United States, terrestrial radio, FM and AM, don't pay any royalties to the sound recording owners because the argument has been that it's promotional value. When you look at 30-second samples, the argument that all these services have made, and, and many of them default to delivering 30 seconds for visitors or people who are logged out, uh, the argument is, well, it's promotional for the service. Um, 
in my experience, most of the companies that offer those 30-second samples have specific carve-outs as part of their larger deals, but it's not something that's legislated anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing I've normally heard is that if, as long as there's a bi-link involved with that 30-second sample, it's not something they'd you know, litigate. Yeah, and for us, we have sort of the lyrical equivalent of a 30-second sample of 150-character snippet that uh, all the publishers know that we use. They're all on, on board. And we'll provide that 150-character that snippet for free to our clients as long as there's a link there to view the full lyrics and it encourages the consumption of the actual licensing event and royalty generating event. So that's been a fairly popular thing for our clients to integrate as well. Yes, sir. Um, If you're going to build your business in part or in whole on a direct license with major label content, what would an equitable equitable license like that look like? (laughs) I mean, you're saying now that it's unfair, so what would an equitable license actually look like if you could ever get one? I'm happy to say I have no idea because I don't have to deal with them. Go! Well, I think the challenge is is that, to answer your question, I I mean, it depends on a case-by-case basis, but what you should understand is that what the the, the licenses look like today. They look like today, what they'll do is they have the hire of a per user fee, a percentage of your revenue fee, or a per song fee. And an annual minimum. And an annual and minimum. And upfront and equity. And upfront and equity. Um, so imagine if you were opening up a hot dog st- uh, stand in your local mall, and the mall owner said, well, instead of charging you just you know, $1,000 per square foot, I'm going to charge you the hire of, which means it's their election, $1,000 a square foot, uh, 22 cents for every hot dog you sell, or 84 cents for every user, that, every customer that walks through your door. You'd never make any money as the hot dog stand. The landlord would do very well. That's how lopsided the contracts are today. Um, they are all-encompassing, meaning that the way they are written If you make any revenue, let's say you have a music service and you decide, I'm going to sell greeting cards, they would include the greeting card revenue in their calculations. That's how all-encompassing the deals are today. So you would have to really have a radically different deal than the ones that the RDOs and the Spotify's, et cetera, have today to make it work. It would have to be a clean deal where they win if you win kind of thing, not one like it is today, where they win kind of no matter what because they get the guaranteed upfronts. And if you are lucky enough to figure out a way to make it, you know, last a few years, you know, they're going to win even greater. So it's really upside down today. Yeah, I think a straight revenue share would be the fairest. The problem with a straight revenue share is then it doesn't prevent you from giving things away for free or just completely devaluing the content. With some kind of annual minimum or something. That's kind of, that's, but, that. but even with an annual minimum then you have the issue of volume, right? If I'm guaranteeing a million dollars a year, but I'm streaming 17 billion tracks, is that... No business model, right? Yeah. Is that fair? Not really. 
Yeah, I, I think the way I would sort of describe it is a, an equitable deal is one where both parties have an opportunity to succeed. Uh, and rather than focusing kind of on the, the small level, one of the, the issues with a lot of digital media services is that the costs tend to scale in a very linear fashion. And that means that the only way that you're going to, to really make any substantial money is massive scale. And part of the problem is it's very difficult to get to that massive scale in those early stages with those costs either scaling in a, a, a totally linear fashion or uh, in an unpredictable fashion because either your rates are exploding like an adjustable mortgage every couple years or uh, that the content owners that you're negotiating with, since they hold all the cards, can basically uh, keep kind of a, a chokehold on your business and prevent you from, from getting bigger than they, they'd like. So I'd basically say you, you want to look for a situation where you can say, okay, well, if I do well, I can do well. And, and that the, the content owners and the artists can do well, too. Yeah. We might be one of the exceptions in sort of the overall music business that we have a ton of negotiated licenses that we're not completely unhappy with. Uh, there's things that we would like to change. There's things that the publishers would like to change. But overall, I think both sides in in the lyrics business are happy with how it's developed and how, it, how it's grown. Do you attribute that, Daryl, to the fact that you are licensing something that previously was unmonetized? For sure, for you sure. Know? And yeah. so, it's found money for them. Right, it, and the challenge with, with some of the ones that deal directly with music licensing is that they look at it and say, well, I'm going to lose CD sales if yeah. you do that. Right? Everything is about cannibalization so that, and, yeah. and price deterioration and things yeah. like that. Yeah, for sure. That's one of our big, uh, the big reasons why we've been able to get deals that we're not unhappy with. All right, we have another question here. Um, yeah. <clears throat> to what extent do you guys think these fights over licensing should go away uh, by the artists and the gatekeepers to the artists finding other ways to make the bulk of their money than the song, the lyrics, and the audio recordings? And is that a world that is far off, close, uh, close what's going to speed it up, slow it down, and is that a world that you uh, would be happy about? It'll never happen. Because the reality is, is that for as far as I can see, major record labels are going to have massive back catalogs. So yeah. even if you got every new artist starting tomorrow to you know, uh, operate differently than, than the artists have over the last you know, 50 years, uh, that wouldn't change the back catalog that they own. It'll and take 35 years, right? Yeah, right. 35. Precisely. Maybe 135, because uh, they'll find ways to fight that. So I think that, that, and that is part of the paradox, right, is that when you go to the major record label and say, I want to do a license, you're not licensing the next album, right? You're licensing the last few decades, and there's only one place to get it, and they know that. And so I don't see that as having any material impact. The other thing I noticed that dealing with artists one-on-one -on -one, uh, is often uh, much more tedious and uh, teeth-grinding than actually dealing with the labels. Uh, earlier, one of the panelists was talking about how uh, certain people or certain publishers say, well, my content is really, really important. Well, artists are like that, but, but worse. Um, yeah. there, are, there are definitely artists out there who, who get it and understand it and are like, yeah, I want, I want my music sold in every store it can be sold in. But there are plenty of artists out there who say, well, my, my music is special and I, I personally need $10 million up front and uh, I, I want an ownership stake in your company. And you think about uh, Daryl's company has had to do deals with over 2,000 publishing companies, each of which that represent uh, a, a big pile of songs. When you go and talk to individual artists... Like, 
the number of deals you have to do just explodes and you really end up in a situation where just in terms of the costs, the, what, what the economists would call shoe leather for making those deals happen, just explodes and you can basically put a piece of paper in front of them and say sign this or don't, I don't care, I gotta run. Well, it depends, though. I mean, again, with a service like SoundCloud, that wouldn't be true, right? Because they effectively opt into a direct deal when they upload the content. Exactly. That's so if basically it's, what if I'm it's actually a self-service model or a DIY model, then it, it probably could work. But yeah, not, that, again, but that's not majorly their like, piece of paper that says sign it or don't. Right. And, right. and yeah. when you look at uh, a lot of the services out there, uh, SoundCloud is, in effect, an aggregator themselves. And so there are companies that have sprung up that are acting as kind of funnels for independent artists and uh, I wouldn't say that they're acting necessarily as record labels, but from the service uh, perspective, they sort of are because they're aggregating content and bundling it together. And that's like TuneCore or uh, Bandcamp or Reverb Nation or IOTA or any of those guys. Uh, Michael, you've, you've, done, you've dealt with adults. Thank you. You've dealt with a lot of contracts. You've poured through uh, a lot of paperwork, obviously, um, in, in this negotiation and your previous companies. Are there situations where exec, top executives at major labels are taking percentages of companies for themselves as part of a negotiation, not just for the label itself? I've never heard of that directly in context of a licensing deal. There was a time in the, in the internet.com uh, explosion um, where you know certain uh, executives of all sorts of industries took percentages in startups. But I've never heard of it directly with uh, license, uh, licensing negotiations. That would be quite unethical and, and open them to some serious issues if they were a public company, which most of the majors are. All right, I think we have time for one more question. Anyone? Yeah. Um, most of the issues you're talking about are, are here in the US. I'm curious if you've seen any differences when you, when you talk about content that, that's not US-based. <laughs> so specifically, like I, I'm a fan of some Japanese musicians, which I can very rarely find available anywhere online. Well, uh, yeah. I would note that as complex as the US law is, it's often uh, worse in, in other countries. And that's one of the reasons that so few services are available internationally. Uh, it's extraordinarily expensive just to uh, get the knowledge and talent and deals you need to start up a service in the U.S., which is the world's largest music market. And when you start looking at smaller music markets that are just as complicated or more complicated, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of obstacles there. Now, now Daryl can speak to that perhaps a little bit because he's working through some of that right now. Yeah, we're, we're in the process of doing a lot of uh, international deals and global licensing. And the laws are different when you start getting outside of... Uh, of the U.S. Uh, and the ownership can be different in managing the rights. Uh, Mohammed, our, my co-founder there, bangs his head against the wall every day trying to figure out how to manage all the data for multiple different countries and multiple different splits. Uh, and just the order of magnitude change uh, in, in the data management to manage rights across multiple territories when there are multiple owners, multiple people that have to get paid uh, and and ingesting that data and holding it, let alone negotiating all of the. I'm not sure what's worse uh, on my end, having to try to negotiate all the deals, or Mohammed's end trying to actually deal with all the data. Uh, both are are really quite ridiculous. Um, and when you start looking at some of the markets and say, okay, this is what the market is in the U.S. 
and now we're going to do these other 20, 40, 50, 100, 200 different countries and manage data individually for each of those, do licensing deals individually for each of those and try to get all of the, the content. Uh, it, it's a minefield both from a technical and legal perspective. Uh, so it is extremely difficult to, uh, to build up those rights and to do it properly. There's, uh, there's lots of things that appear to be worldwide. Or even when, when a publisher grants us a worldwide license, it's not really a true worldwide license. It doesn't mean that they give us a song and we can use that song everywhere in the world. They're granting us all the rights that they happen to have. So that might be for a particular song just for the US. They might have sub-publishing deals in other countries. Or they might have, uh, there's a publisher that, you know, that they have all these different territory codes that they don't actually correspond to individual countries, they correspond to some block of text that describes where they have the rights for that song. So there's literally about 1,500 territory codes, and they might be, one is US and Canada. Another one says, uh, the world except for Guatemala. And you have to parse all these things and figure out where you're actually allowed to use it. So there's no true worldwide license that exists for any of the, this stuff. You have to actually still manage everything on a territory-by-territory territory basis. And it's a huge pain in the ass. And we, I see the end sign over there. So, Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank you all for your attention and your awesome questions. Our panelists are going to be around today. Uh, please enjoy the rest of the show. I'd like to thank David and, and Michael and Daryl for their time.